0: Have you ever noticed that big infrastructure projects in New Zealand, you know, the eight-, nine-, ten-figure ones, never seem to come in on time? The opening of the $850 million transmission gully motorway north of Wellington is likely to be delayed. They are reliably late and just as reliably expensive. Christchurch has a big bill to contend with if it still wants the multi-use stadium that's been in the works since the earthquakes 11 years ago. The problem-plagued project has blown out another $150 million, meaning it's going to cost about $680 million and counting. The Wellington City Council has agreed to increase the budget for quake-proofing the town hall to $112 million. That's almost triple the $43 million estimate it received in 2013. So, why is that? You know, the entities that are commissioning these projects, they're not amateurs. We're talking about councils and governments. And jokes aside, these are institutions from which we expect competence. And the firms that are designing and building these... This is their bread and butter, right? Their reputations rest on winning work and delivering on promises. So why do those promises so rarely seem to be kept when it comes to the big-ticket items? I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, AUT's John Tukey, a professor of construction management on how a big infrastructure project evolves from conception to execution, the folly of making public promises based on imperfect information, and how dramatically things can change when you dig into the ground and discover what lies beneath. Do you think the general public has a good understanding of how big infrastructure projects come into being? um generally no and the reason being the numbers
1: that are involved and the time and the uh, technologies that are required are usually so excessive that it's it's usually beyond the uh, the the ability of the average person to fathom it
0: because it's beyond their experience when you say excessive do you mean more than is needed or just the nature of it is beyond what most people encounter in their day-to-day? Absolutely, absolutely. It, it is beyond what they uh, uh, encounter on a day-to-day
1: basis and that's that's normal. However, the issues associated with time and cost overruns, for example, are exactly the same. Mm. If you, uh, for example, wanted to buy a house and many people have bought a house and built their own house over the years, um, then you find out very quickly the fact that um, a fixed price deal that you initially sign up for as a for, for your house goes out of the window when you start changing things mm. well the same principles apply to uh, any infrastructure project and that's typically what uh, the major issues that we have to deal with in New Zealand or any other location around the world it's the uh, after we've signed up everything it's our changing of the mind mm. and, and going in a different direction and adding scope or adding additional functionality which causes the problem.
0: Let's kind of talk about how a project goes from being an idea to being executed however many years and hundreds of millions of dollars.
1: Okay, you identify a need. Right, that's the first thing that you obviously have to do. However, how that need is specified is a totally different proposition because it varies from project to project the degree to which research has been done to figure out what the genuine need is. So I'll give you an example. Consider the Auckland Harbour Bridge. There we are. We welcome the Auckland Harbour Bridge. And we're very glad to see that it's functioning fine and the traffic is flowing very smoothly. And I think at that point... When that first started in 1955 and then completed in 1959, there was a big swatch of time immediately after the Second World War where, because it was an austerity bridge, we were trying to stimulate the economy and so on, um, how do we go about doing that? Well, we we can build a bridge from St Mary's Bay to North Cape Point. Okay, fine. How big? Oh, then it gets into a, a a little bit of a bun fight because we don't know. And actually, at the time, North Shore was a handful of different uh, destinations. Mm. That what you what you think of in your mind's eye of what North Shore looks like in the modern day is nothing like what it was in 1950s. Mm. There were strawberry fields, and you know there were farms. This was not in any way, shape, or form a developed exercise. It was not part of a, an integrated uh, roading system or anything like that. It was, a, it was a bridge between one suburb of Auckland to the other. Uh, it was originally specified at five lanes. Why? Uh, well, well you know, What made them do that? Well, it seemed like a good idea. <laughs> and then it, then it went back to four lanes, and it was negotiated down. And if it hadn't have gone to four lanes then the, uh, the project wouldn't have started mm. because it would have, uh, it would have been too, too much. The amount of money at stake was something over £700,000 at the time, mm. and the total build cost was something over £6 million at the time. It all boiled down to a negotiation of mm. half a million, and that in a nutshell is part of the problem with ma- major infrastructure projects. You know, you, There are a lot of people in there, a lot of people who have got a very close eye on how much things cost, um, you know, they're all saying, "Well, who's going to pay for it?" Not unreasonably, uh, and they're also thinking in terms of, "Well, yeah, but the the beneficiary should pay." Well, how do they do
0: that when the beneficiary doesn't live on North Shore yet? Mm, mm. So, is the lesson there that big-ticket pieces of infrastructure should not be too firmly rooted or dependent on the time in which it's built?
1: Uh, The the big takeaway is actually the fact that we need to build in plenty of expandability Uh so that we can cope with uh, situations that we have. You know, we don't know what the future holds, but we can make some educated guesses.
0: So we've got the the starting point of a big infrastructure project, which is identifying a need and a thing that you have to factor into the need is the expandability of a big piece of infrastructure. Absolutely. So where do things go from... From the uh-
1: what you first do is you get together a business plan, okay. business case okay. that you're then going to take to funders to be able to uh, to to, uh, to to bankroll the whole exercise. Whether that be central government or local government, obviously the bigger the project, the more likely central government's going to get involved. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of a given. And then once you've got to the point where there's a business case, and yep, obviously the growth dyma- dynamics that are in place in Auckland or whichever city um, are such that we need to actually invest in this. Um, then what do we do then we have to start you know, putting together initial tender costs and so on and so forth to be able to get to the point where we can actually start committing ourselves to design things mm. um you know and it's the 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 issue unfortunately i mean it, at the moment as an example we're we're in the point of uh, getting the go-ahead associated with um Christchurch stadium yeah
0: Christchurch is getting a stripped-back version of its planned indoor stadium, but the budget-friendly pick could cost the city in the long run. The City Council voted yesterday to reduce the number of seats in the arena from 30,000 to 25,000 in an attempt to stop an $88 million budget blowout. The problem-plagued project has blown out another $150 million, meaning it's going to cost about $680 million and counting.
1: Only 10 years after the original decision that we should have a multifunctional stadium (laughs) and only seven years after the initial 230-odd million or whatever it was, uh, was committed to being, being able to do that. Now we're in a point where we've actually gone through the toings and froings because we haven't, although we'd articulated the requirement to have a stadium in Christchurch, the downside is we don't know how big the stadium's going to be. And they're still arguing the, the toss over the, uh, over the size of the stadium because that will dictate a lot of the, the, the cost and also the maintenance, ongoing maintenance costs, and so on and so forth. And that will ultimately drive those decisions in terms of scope will drive the... Decision in terms of how much we're going to spend on the whole exercise. The business case will be made, so we need something. Uh-huh. Then they'll go for preliminary design. Yeah. Then it'll after the preliminary design, we'll then get some, uh, we'll, we'll put some feelers out. And typically, what happens with major pieces of infrastructure, we will tend to not have a an open tender exercise. We will tend to gravitate towards a, a either a preferred bidder type of approach, or alternatively. Put it out to a couple of different competing consortia because large infrastructure projects tend to require consortia rather than, you don't just build a builder, you, know, you don't just choose a builder and say, get on with it. That builder um, who is the lead contractor has to assemble a team mm-hmm. of individuals and groups. Of, uh, of, of companies.
0: And is that because in New, Ze- in New Zealand the, the companies of the scale to take on a project solo just don't ex-
1: No one company has all the skills necessary. Sure. Because you don't... I mean, as an example, for the Waterview project, the likes of Fletcher's who ultimately had the, the Lee contract status, they didn't have a standalone boring machine running company. However, there's a whole bunch of Swiss people mm-hmm. over the you know, other side of the world who do have that capability, and that's where you, you you build your consortium around the key skill sets that you need. You've got to bear in mind that the average, um, you know, the very large infrastructure projects in particular tend to be highly specialised in what they what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And consequently, you know, there's only a finite number of people around the world who, Ultimately, have the necessary skill set.
0: You can't keep generous yeah, for a job like that. Yeah,
1: you can't keep generous. Uh, absolutely, you need specialists. You need people who've got a, a background in putting all this
0: stuff together. the The project gets put out to tender, or or preferred companies are identified, yep. and what they're asked: We want to achieve this. Yep. How much is it going to cost us?
1: You'll do an initial estimate on the basis of of the preliminary designs that have uh, been put in place with great big fudge factors associated with all the things that we don't know about at the moment. And what are those sorts of things? Oh, I mean, at one end of the scale, classically something like geotechnical, things that you weren't found in the original survey which can occur. Uh, I mean, as an example, the Clyde Dam. Yeah, uh, is is a, is a good example of that.
0: Well, the reason for the delay is that the gorge has a number of fault lines and old landslides that could threaten the stability of the hillsides above Lake Dunstan.
1: We found there was a whole bunch of microcracking that was found in some of the rocks that weren't originally detected. Okay, it's the way it is. You yeah. have to deal with it. And and you know one of the things about particularly buried assets, buried infrastructure, big holes in the ground. Yeah. They are literally big holes in the ground, and once you break ground, you find out all sorts of things that you didn't necessarily know
0: about. So the firms are saying, you know, there are known unknowns here, but we'll, yeah. we'll offer estimates in these kinds of yeah. areas. Yeah, they're, they're initial estimates, and they get fleshed out over time, and then
1: it goes out you know, to a more competitive uh, element where sub-trades are, uh, are allocated and so on. Okay. And it, you, you start to firm up the estimates. That having been said... The key problem when you're dealing with major infrastructure um, ideas, and we talked about it with regard to the Christchurch Stadium. The original stated requirement for a, a um, for a stadium was in 2012. We're now 10 years later. Yeah. Well, that's three government cycles. Yeah. If you can tell me what's happening in, you know, three government cycles in terms of policy. At one end of the spectrum, immigration policy. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, importations yeah. policy with regard to tariffs and tr- all the other cost, materials. cost of materials yeah. and so on. You know, what we've put in place is is some reasonable estimates based on, you know, some historic measures of inflation, for example. Mm-hmm. And then so you, being, can
0: make, you can make predictions about how things might develop over the coming years, but there's only so much that you can do.
1: There is only so much you can do, and uh, the, the longer the development process and the more frequently you end up refining the scope, each and every time you refine the scope, you immediately uh, trigger additional costs. Everything
0: takes time, everything has to be refined, and everything costs money. In a a, a nutshell, yes. (laughs) It it literally is that simple. So, if you look at some of the big-ticket projects, Wellington Town Hall... The Wellington City Council is being accused of spending a preposterous amount of money on its town hall. The cost of earthquake strengthening is now expected to be $112 million. It's nearly three times the initial estimate. Transmission Gully... Wellington's billion-dollar road project, Transmission Gully, has blown its budget again. But who will pay the extra is unclear. You know, people would be forgiven for thinking, oh my God, nothing ever comes in on time and nothing ever comes in on budget. Is that a fair perception?
1: I understand why that is a perception. It's not a fair perception. I'll give you the classic example. Let's go to the the, um, Auckland Harbour Bridge. Delivered ahead of budget and ahead of time. Mm. But 63 years ago, though? Uh, Yes, 63 years ago. um, But it was still a tough schedule to meet and it was met. It is unfair, and that w- one of the reasons why it's unfair is because it's it's a constant, um, easy uh, accusation to make: is oh, it's these dumb builders, so they're trying to they're trying to rot the market, blah blah blah. And it's and it's just not the case. What the, what folks forget is that there are an awful lot of extraneous uh, forces and factors in play that that are driving a lot of the decisions and a lot of the outcomes, particularly in large scale infrastructure projects. Um, like you know, what? Like what? If you go back in, in time to the uh, mid-2000s, all of a sudden structural steel work rocketed in cost. Well, why was that? Because China was um, retaining structural steel for the creation of various venues and infrastructure necessary for the delivery of the 2008 Olympics. Mm. Any builder here know that was coming? Uh, you know, it, it was when the when the decision was taken and all of a sudden... You know, in effect, without forewarning, the the, you know, the Chinese uh, producers stopped uh, exporting stuff, yeah. and all of a sudden, the cost of uh, structural steel went through the roof. Yeah. Happens all the time. What we're dealing with at the moment, courtesy of the post-COVID world, I've got friends. One's a roofer, and they they had a forty-two percent uh, price in, in, uh, increase for waterproofing materials. If we look at what's happened over the last two two and a bit years, courtesy of COVID. You know, all of a sudden we've had a drop falling off of uh, the uh, the total amount of uh, shipping coming into New Zealand. Could you have predicted that? No. And yet it's having massive implications associated with all sorts of consumables, comestibles for use for the building industry. Can't do much about that. You just have to deal with it. It's not the fault of the industry per se. It's just dealing with the dynamics of the situation. There is a, a very good example of this that we could... Uh, Immediately talk to it. It's the way in which numbers tend to stick around. Hmm. If you look again at the Christchurch uh, scenario with the uh, stadium, you've got your uh, two hundred thirty odd million dollars yep. that were committed by government. Well, that's great, but it, it it matches the number that was originally banded around right at the beginning of the exercise, and now things have changed. Well, it's seven years later. Hmm. Of course things have changed. Well, yeah, but it's also three times the cost. It is, but the number that came out originally was some... You know, what tends to happen is people do the back-of-a-fact-packet calculation, particularly when it's about securing a commitment from somebody else, you know, to, to get involved with. Yes, absolutely, it's, it's a back-of-a-fact-packet calculation, and, you know, that's just kind of what happens. A good example from the UK. The Scottish Parliament was originally quoted as being about 40 million pounds to produce then people got involved people wanted to have a nice posh building with architectural merit and all the other things that mm. are necessary and they got a an architect from uh, Barcelona called Enrique Morales who came over and he started doing his thing and it it was rather convoluted but suffice it to say it became a, a highly architectural building mm. it goes from being a, a simple cube office block to now being a highly architectural, sculptured building, and so on. And anybody who look takes the time to look at the uh, at the the building will see what I mean. Mm. And it also, uh, they also required all sorts of special materials, Scottish oak, and this and that and the other. Anyway, scroll forward. The final as-built cost was four hundred and thirty-five million. Mm. Ten times. See that's. <sighs> and the but the reason is it started out with this much space, which requires this much cost. You know, assuming an old, f- just a big cube, but all of a sudden it was making an ar- artistic statement. Yeah, I understand. And yeah. that changes everything.
0: It's almost like that figure that you say at the beginning—that forty million dollar figure—like that is it the f- fi- it fixes things exactly. in exactly. Well, exactly, in space and, and time, and that often, right, is the figure that always wanna, gets quoted. Yeah, if you want to <laughs> get if you want to get something done, then that's the figure that you quote at the beginning, and that's the figure that people get into their minds, yep. and it's almost misleading. Uh, it is, but it it gets people over the event
1: horizon of of, the, of making the necessary decision. Yeah.
0: So is the lesson there that we, any infrastructure project as first floated, do not take that figure seriously. Um, just treat it with a hint of scepticism. Let's put it that way. And
1: and you know look at the, look at who's making the quotes. Look at who's pushing the agenda, and
0: why. Well, I was going to ask about that. It strikes me that it's in almost everybody's best interests to sell the vision in the most optimistic way. Possible. It's in the government's best interest to sell it to the vo- to, to the electorate in, in its best form, and it's also whatever firm wants to take on the project. It's in their best interests to provide the best possible quote to government in order to win the contract. Like it's easier to ask for forgiveness for not meeting your obligations than to miss out on the contract in the first place. Absolutely,
1: um, that that tends to be the the way, to a greater or lesser extent, it, it tends to be the way. There's a couple of ways of, of viewing this, though. Um, there are instances where companies are seeking to buy business. Now, if you go back in, in, in uh, re- relatively recent history, if you recall the, uh, the, the problems that Fletcher got into.
0: The company revealed it would make a $660 million loss in its buildings and interiors division this year, half a billion more than it forecast in October
1: part of the reason for that was the, deci- the, the, the guy who was running things at the time was an accountant rather than an engineer or anything else. And he didn't really, un- he wasn't really a, a building person. He came in from another company. And the big thing for him was to actually build uh, the book, you know, so to create more work, mm-hmm. because more work equates to more profit, right? The problem is that winning work in construction is easy. Making it pay is very hard. Mm-hmm. They wanted the business, and so they pitched it. And the thing is that if it was anybody else who were coming up to the marketplace and quoting at the level that they were quoting at, you kind of look at it and say, do you have the capacity to deliver on this price? Probably not. Mm-hmm. But Fletcher say it's going to happen. They're big enough. They can you know, take, a, take a hit, in effect. So obviously, it got signed off. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is the issue of the people who are, ma- who are making the decisions, as in the funders. Mm-hmm. If you dig a hole and it costs you a 1000 bucks. And you decide, I'm not going to do this. That's no problem. It's a thousand bucks. Dig a hole for a million dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Totally different exercise. <laughs> yeah. Now,
1: all of a sudden, this building will happen because we've spent a million bucks on getting this far. So, you know, when you're a politician and you're looking at getting serious funds in place for, you know, the equivalent of the Sydney Opera House or whatever it may be, what you're looking for is people to commit. If things start to escalate, okay. Um, we've got the commitment because this is not going to stop. Mm. Once, it's, once we break ground, once we've now got the metaphorical hole in the ground worth a million bucks, yeah. now that hole will, will transform into whatever it is that you want.
0: Well, exactly. And I guess that goes into the thing of, like, from a firm's point of view, and I guess from a government's point of view as well, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. A- absolutely. Absolutely. But I feel like that's what, <laughs> that's what pisses people off, though. But
1: when you say they're the asking for uh, forgiveness rather than permission, that's. It's not the builders who are asking for permission to build things. It's politicians and those sorts of decision makers around the funding. They're the ones who are
0: making the call. Mm. How would you encourage people with no expertise in this area to view big infrastructure projects to avoid getting outraged? Mm.
1: That's a very, very interesting question right there. You've got to look at uh, big infrastructure, uh, um, and whether it be tunnels or bridges or whatever, you have to look at what they are, which is uh, a political undertaking uh, looking at the longevity of the community that's being served. Cutting corners on the provision of infrastructure for the future doesn't ultimately lead to good outcomes. It means that you end up with the sort of flow on effects of having to re-engineer the infrastructure down the track to cope with the additional um, capacity needs or whatever it may be. Try to think utilitarian. Try, try to think utilitarian. View it longer term. It takes a bit of time, takes a bit of effort, yeah. takes a bit of vision, and you can't think short term when, you, when you're actually you're building for history because that's what ultimately it comes down to.
0: That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform, and if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Rangi Poek and produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison, and thanks to John Tukey. Matewa.